everyone, it's Nicole, and I have a quick announcement before we jump into this amazing recording. Steffi and I decided to change up how we approach this episode for our Chatty Kathy patrons. Instead of alerting our patrons before we recorded so that questions could be submitted, we decided to wait so that our patrons could submit questions after the recording. Frankie has already agreed to record another episode if needed, and we just felt this episode was so foundational and important that we wanted to make sure that our listeners didn't leave this episode with unanswered questions. So if after listening to this episode, if you do have any questions, just become a Chatty Kathy patron for just $10 a month to submit your question. You can learn more about becoming a patron by visiting our website at www www.womancenteredhealth.com and click on the support us slash patreon tab welcome to the woman centered health podcast i am dr nicole lowe and with me is dr stephanie edmonds we are both phd prepared nurses and the founders of woman centered health join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com everybody and welcome to the Woman Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Frankie Keenly. Frankie currently teaches psych nursing at the University of Iowa, is a sexual assault nurse examiner or SANE nurse, and also does a lot of professional education surrounding LGBTQ language use, which is actually what we are going to be talking with Frankie about today. We're really excited to have a whole episode talking just about language use because this is something that we have touched on in a lot of other episodes and different context. And we have also seen a lot in our online spaces that this is somewhat of a contentious or uncomfortable topic. If you misgender, don't use the right pronouns, or even why using correct pronouns is so important. But anyways, before we get into the interview, we do want to make our monthly pitch to become a patron of the Woman Centered Health Podcast. You can do that by going to www.patreon.com slash WCH, or you can go online on our website at www www.womancenteredhealth.com. And here, if you become a patron, you can get all of our lovely show notes, which we will have show notes for this episode as well. And if you like our podcast, please tell your colleagues and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Hi, Frankie. Thanks so much for being with us today. We always like to start out by asking if you could provide some details about your background. So your clinical experience, your educational background, anything else you want to share? Sure. So I'm Frankie. Uh, My pronouns are they, them. I uh, graduated from the University of Iowa with my undergrad in nursing in 2010. I went back a few years later uh, to get my master's in nursing with an emphasis in education at Mount Mercy University. During that time, I worked at uh, UHC on an inpatient psychiatric unit, uh, which is my favorite population to work with. And then in the last, I think, oh gosh, it was uh, over a year now, I left the clinical setting, which was an adventure, uh, and switched over to academia full-time. And now I teach didactic and clinical courses, as well as work a little bit as a sexual assault nurse examiner. So the other question we always like to ask our guests is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? That is such a good question. I really love it. I'm going to steal it um, for my students. (laughs) 
I fell in love with psych nursing specifically because I felt like it's a population that has chronic illnesses like a lot of the populations that we look at but doesn't get the emotional support or social support that others do. And it just kind of resonated with me. The reason I got into doing this, the language aspect of LGBT care, is for personal reasons. I'm transgender and have dealt with the nonsense that occurs in clinical settings and healthcare since I came out. And a lot of it looked at language. Uh, the fir- I remember many years ago, I had some students who were taking care of a trans woman and we got back to post-conference and they started asking, and not meanly, but just they started asking about her genitalia. They didn't you know, know what to do, how to provide care. And I realized that they weren't getting that information in undergraduate. Um, and so I went like, holy shit. <laughs> and sorry for swearing. Uh, I panicked a little and started digging around. And uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Larry Newman, was doing some education on it, but he had just gotten promoted to a director spot for his graduate program. And so I kind of, you know, worked my way in and he was nice enough to kind of help me. And we still present together pretty, pretty regularly. But it just kind of started out with like, I found a need and started doing it. We've I've presented at hospital centers, school nurse conferences. I've talked to school counselors. I've gone to individual schools. I've gone to community organizations, uh, LGBT language talks for sororities and fraternities, for, gosh, (laughs) kind of wherever somebody will sit down and listen to me, I will talk to them. Uh, Most recently, I've been going to campus libraries. That's been, they've had me in for a couple education things there. So basically, anywhere I can get people to listen. So I just have a question about that, too, since you're an educator and you're teaching, I think, undergraduate nursing students. Yes. Correct. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that you are incorporating this into all your classwork or clinical. Mm -hmm. So how do you sort of include that in, you know, not just these special talks that you give, Mm -hmm. but um, in everyday learning? Well, That's actually a great question. One of the things that research has shown us is that when you live in a marginalized population like being transgender or just a member of the LGBT community, one of the things that is a protective factor is positive images or positive role models in media specifically, but just also in general. And so one of the things that I think is very important is to, like, I talk about my partner who is also trans, like anybody would talk about their significant other. I include case studies of trans people where that's not what they're there for, but they are trans. So it's basically the idea of like showing normalcy and making it normal. One of the things that we actually unfortunately see in healthcare, especially with children, is high rates of suicidality and mental health issues if the child is, uh, if their support system is not supportive of them coming out as trans. And so because of that, we see higher percentages of trans people in psychiatric settings. And so it's actually a population my students interact with pretty regularly. Yeah, thanks for that. I just realized I probably didn't answer, finish answering why it was valuable to me. No, go ahead. 
so it's valuable to me because there is bigotry, just basic bigotry that I cannot always fix with education and statistics. But the majority of people I interact with have good intentions, but do not know what to say or how to say things. And so for me, one of the ways to improve care for trans people is to improve the way clinicians interact with trans people. And one of those ways is including correct language. And so I do the presentation I do is very brief. It's only about an hour max. I've cut it down to 20 minutes if I like really need to. But a lot of it is, like you said, it's not just like having like little lectures, but the idea of educating, but also communicating like human beings do well when we humanize others. So just trying to humanize a small percentage of the population. I can already tell that we could talk all day about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm good at that. No, and it's and I'm really excited, but I'm going to have to really like time check myself and because I'm just I'm already so excited to talk about all of this. Okay. So today, like we said, we're going to talk to Frankie about language, so we're going to jump right in. And before we get started on some of this stuff, we really want to just lay some groundwork first. So can you first talk about or talk with us about the difference between sex and gender? Yeah. So this is pretty 101. Um, and like when we're doing any kind of 101, there are complexities outside that if it's kind of like you have to learn to walk before you can run. So there are complexities beyond what I'm giving you that somebody would be like, you forgot about this. Yes. I, but to give very basic, when we're using terms for sex and gender, sex refers to biological sex. So we're talking about chromosomes. We're talking about reproductive functions. We're talking about external genitalia. Gender is from your brain. It's a person's internal sense of self and being. So we used to think that sex and gender were the same thing. And now there are many people who are much smarter than I am who are doing, uh, and this ranges from physicians, anthropologists, nurses, social workers, sociologists. Like this isn't just like, I think a lot of times the idea comes as, oh, it's just some SJWs coming from outside telling everybody that we're making new genders. No. So sex, like I said, is just biologic and reproductive functions and gender is self-identified. So one of the ways that I, one of the ways that's commonly used to separate them is when I'm using the word female or male or intersex, I'm referring to biological sex. And when I use terms like man, woman, gender non-binary, that's referring to gender. Perfect. Yeah. So then building on this, what are some other concepts that you have found clinicians struggle with? For example, like sexual orientation or gender presentation? So I have found clinicians really struggle with the language. A lot of times people get gender and sexual orientation conflated or confused, but they're separate from each other. So for example, somebody's gender identity is how they feel about themselves. And somebody's sexual orientation is the sexual or romantic feelings they feel for other people. And so a lot of times people will, and you you can definitely see it historically, where people would conflate being gay with wanting to be, being a gay man to wanting to be a woman. And those things are separate. And so it's important to realize that we need to not assume. One of the things that I get frustrated with is people who pass. And so by pass, I mean, when somebody looks at them, they read as the gender that they're um, identifying as, they usually get treated much better 
than people who do not pass or look like they're supposed to. It's kind of the stereotype that if you are a trans feminine person, you have to embody everything that is femininity. You have to have perfect makeup and hair and clothes and all those things. And if you are transmasculine, you have to embody masculinity. You have to be butch and masculine and have all of those. You have to hunt, you know, like you have to (laughs) fit into those boxes. And so when we have people coming into the hospital with facial hair and they say they're a woman, it's not intentional sometimes. But healthcare workers tend to kind of get stuck on, well, this is the the thing in the chart. And that's what we have to go by, which, why? <laughs> um, but a lot of it just comes down to just, it's kind of like, I, I don't like equating um, identity with, with illnesses, but let's just say you've never had dyslexia. All right. And then because you haven't had dyslexia, Nobody else has dyslexia. That's kind of how gender dysphoria and gender identity can be. If you haven't had the the disconnect from how you are read to how you feel, it's hard to describe. And so because it's hard to describe, people don't believe it's real. And one of the things that I think is really important is that like we don't lay this as like, oh, this is something that happens in rural hospitals, or this is something that happens in less educated spaces, because that's absolutely not true. Um, It's to the point where uh, in Iowa City, for example, we have uh, RVAP, the Rape Victims Prevention and Advocacy Program. Yes, Mm -hmm. sorry. (laughs) Um, And they actually just started a program called Queer Health Advocates, where they train people to go into health situations with LGBT plus people because the medical violence is so pervasive. And I could give you many stories of personal experience and from people I know who go into the system and are treated horrifically by well-intentioned people. I kind of want to go into them a little bit. If you feel comfortable. Yeah, sure. Or especially common themes. So there's actually a, a phrase for it. It's so common. It's called trans broken leg syndrome. And so what that is, is that you go in with a broken leg and they get fixated on your hormone or surgical interventions, even though that has nothing to do with your broken leg. So a couple summers ago, I decided I was going to try to be crafty and, and do yard work and like try to be a gardener, and and I hurt myself. I fell and sprained my ankle, and the crunch was louder than I thought it should be. So I went to quick care so they could give me an x-ray just because I wanted to make sure it wasn't broken. And I get to quick care, and this was before I had had my legal name changed. And so my name was my birth name, which is a very feminine name. And I have facial hair um, and a flat chest, and I look very masculine. And so I did, I was the good trans patient. I came in and I was like, hi, my name is Frankie. That's not my legal name. This is my legal name. I am here because I was hurt. I would really appreciate it if people would use this name instead of what's on my chart. I, I did all this stuff. And I was sitting and waiting for the physician's assistant to come in. And she came in. And I, I want to preface this with just, I am sure her intentions were very good, and I'm sure she also thought she was being a fantastic ally. So I'm sitting there, and she comes in, and she's like, hey, how you doing? And I was like, I don't know. She's like, so I heard that your name used to be, it's not, Ashley. And I was like, I mean, yeah, 
I would prefer you call me Frankie. And she was like, so how far are you in your transition? Which is a weird question to ask because it shouldn't affect my sprained ankle in any way. And also like, I don't know, halfway done? Like, I don't know the answer to the question. <laughs> so I shared my the medical interventions I'd received at that point. And she started talking about hormones. And I kind of interrupted her and I was like, and she started talking about, and I was like, oh no, I'm good. And she's like, well, a lot of people don't know about the LGBT clinic here in Iowa City. And I finally lost my temper a little bit. And I was like, I teach this for a living. <laughs> <laughs> and she kind of was like, oh, and then, you know, got me my x-ray. But it was it was a literal example of trans broken leg syndrome. And I have seen this done. I'm lucky that I have not experienced this, but I 100% know that it gets much more extreme. You know, I was mildly inconvenienced and emotionally uncomfortable for five minutes. But I know that at some uh, like LGBT conferences, they have classes sometimes to teach people how to like do stitches on themselves because it's so scary to go into the ER. I know Seriously? trans women. Yes. I know trans women that change clothes before going in. Like if something happens, like they get hurt, they'll go home and change clothes to present correctly. So they aren't discriminated against. There's cases historic. Like, so right now, one of the big things that's going on in the United States is the Supreme court deciding if people can discriminate based on religion. And historically we know that this kills trans people. Tyra Hunter was a black trans woman who died in 1995. She was in a car accident and the EMTs came to take care of her and were cutting her clothes off um, to assess. And they realized she was trans and they stopped helping her and mocked her while she died. Uh, there's another case. Robert Eads was a trans man who developed cancer. And because he was trans, he couldn't find a doctor to take care of him. So by the time he, time he received care, his cancer had metastasized and he passed away in 99. So it's one of those things where we just don't come to see you and we die earlier because of it. And the statistics also bear that out. There was a trans health survey done. It was the largest survey of trans people ever done. I was believe is 2015 or 2016. And the respondents, the response they had indicated that 23% of trans people avoid coming to healthcare when they need it because of fear of discrimination. Yes. And we want to fix that for sure. Yes, that would be lovely. And there are many systemic issues that need to be fixed right. that we could spend hours talking about. Mm -hmm. But one of the biggest ways I found to communicate that you are supportive and wanting to be a better ally and wanting to help someone is to use correct language because it kind of communicates to everyone that you're safe. An example I use is like, to quote something similar, is if you're on a that I'm assuming you guys are too good for this, but have you ever been on Tinder? I have looked at my friend's Tinder. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nightmare. As someone who <laughs> is was on it, for a long I time. I think it's, it's kind a, of fun. It's a, it's, a, it's a hellscape and it's fine. But if you went on a date with somebody that you met on Tinder and it, it was uh -huh. a guy uh -huh. and he said, I'm not a feminist, I'm an equalist. Oh, God. That would communicate a lot, right? <laughs> right. That I would believe. give you all the information you needed to GTFO. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what it's like 
if you're trans and somebody's like, oh, I just like I really, you know, I don't get those transgendered people. Mm-hmm. It's using that language wrong is like a little red flag. Now, I'm not saying that good intentions and good behavior can make up for mistakes. And like we all make mistakes. So, Frankie, and yeah. I just really quick with what you're saying, because like, this in. is something we no, no, this is something I've seen on Facebook or, you know, in online spaces Would people who also say things like I just treat everybody the same. Yeah, I've seen that a lot of the time. Yeah. Oh, God, that hurts. <laughs> Does that phrase then fit into what you're saying right now? Yes. So I understand the intention when people say that phrase. The problem is, is that whenever people say phrases like that, it communicates that they are not aware of the unintentional bias that comes from working with someone who is in a marginalized population, you know, like regardless of somebody's intentions of seeing everybody the same, for one, we know that isn't true, just based on like a mountain of research done on any sort of bias against a marginalized population ever. But we also know that the institutional bias still exists. And so if you say, oh, I treat the trans patient the same as the other, the cisgendered patient, you might perceive that but statistically, you are wrong. It's kind of like when somebody says, I treat all, you know, I treat black patients the same as white patients. But if we did that, we wouldn't have black people dying more of heart attacks and they're being undertreated. We hope that we are not biased, but we are. And so realizing that everyone has bigotry kind of coded into their brain because of the society we live in and not necessarily related at all to personal flaws. If we can't get people to like agree to that, that makes it hard to move forward because you can't address systemic issues if you don't acknowledge that they exist. So I want to keep unpacking that a little bit because I think this is a really, really important Again, phrase I've heard and what you're saying. So how can you say one of our listeners is listening and and Mm -hmm. they're like, well, but, you know, I say that or I identify with that. How can a person begin to recognize that or unpack that themselves or recognize? What can that person do to to think about what you just said there? That is a really good question. (laughs) Um, and I, I'm hoping I will I will do a service for it. The first thing to unpack is realizing that prejudice isn't necessarily a character flaw in the sense that like it's not there's have you guys heard of the iceberg model? It's the idea that so like at the tippy top of the iceberg that we see, let's just let's use uh, racism towards black people as an example. At the tippy top, we have the Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis. Like, right, those are that's the top of the iceberg that we can see. But below is all the other things that support the top of the iceberg. So we've got microaggressions, we've got biased care, we've got unequal housing opportunities and unequal educational opportunities, you know, lack of financial re- all uh, food deserts. So we've got all these little things that manifest as big bigotry. And we consider, like, I don't think there's anybody in my life who wouldn't be like, yeah, the KKK sucks. Like, I'm, I'm not racist because I'm not the KKK. But really, we all take part of and benefit from the other system things unless we recognize them and actively work 
to like fight against them, we're still being bigoted. Like I will, because of being a white person, always be able to and be racist towards black people because of the social environment that I was raised in. So that's something as an ally that I need to actively work on unpacking and being better. And so I don't want to, like, I, I know that a lot of times this kind of talk from a white liberal snowflake comes off as very finger shaky and way better. But it's just the idea that the world that I live in is vastly different than the world of someone else based on their privileges or lack thereof. And if you just getting to the place where you recognize that is really how you kind of start to unpack and better understand the world other people live in. Like the world I live in now is very different than the world I grew up in because I am trans and I was assigned female at birth. So I was identified as a woman or a girl as a baby and I lived 28 years of my life as that. And my life now that I pass, quote unquote, as a man is miles different. Like it's night and day. And so realizing that we are inhabiting different worlds almost and that we need to work together to try to bring it together is the first step. Hmm. Yeah, it's just like absorbing all this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So good. Thank you. (laughs) So I wanted to, going back to your story about the trans broken leg, I really appreciated that story in the sense that I think that our listeners on for this podcast are probably very well intended. Yes. But I think that sometimes, you know, and this goes for a lot of different situations, but I think a lot of the time some people want to come off as such an ally that mm-hmm. then they like go that way with conversations. And that's sort of what I noticed in your story. Instead of focusing on the problem that you came in with mm-hmm. the PA almost wanted to like show off that hey I'm an ally mm-hmm. probably not intentionally but maybe oh, no, about I think- them so I think that's really it's real you know there's obviously really awful situations too that you brought up later but I think showing kind of everyday well-intended people are doing things that are not helpful is important yeah and One of the things that I think is important to realize is just because – and I think that's where the fear comes in with the language that people are afraid they're going to say it wrong so they don't say anything. And that's not what we want. It's more the idea of realizing when you might make a mistake and knowing the steps to take afterwards. One thing I wanted to throw out, I'm using a bunch of terms that I didn't clarify. Do you mind if I do a quick like little blurb on what the words are? Yeah, and one of the ones, just before you start, I wanted to ask you, too, about the, like, assigned at birth. Yeah. Because I know some some trans people I've spoken with like to use female assigned at birth or male assigned at birth instead of this biological sex yes. term. So, if yeah, go ahead. So, we'll start off with just the very basic. And so, transgender is somebody whose gender identity doesn't match up with their sex assigned at birth. Sex assigned at birth is a shorthand term that we use for uh, what somebody's biological sex is. Clinicians will appreciate this joke, but uh, 
the reason that sometimes as clinicians we need to know biological sex is because sometimes it does matter. You know, like if I'm in a urology clinic, I need to know if my patient has a prostate. Mm-hmm. Like that's my job. Mm-hmm. And so the assigned female at birth or assigned male at birth are nice shorthands that you need to put in. Uh, Dr. Newman is, has my favorite quote of why we need to know this, because sometimes you just need to know what holes to swab where. <laughs> and it's true. Um, so the shorthand for saying that is AMAB or AFAB, which I like. Oh. Um, some older terms that you might hear are MTF or FTM, and that's male to female or female to male. But again, that doesn't recognize the difference between sex and gender. And so you'll see MTF as kind of an older term used. Um, If you go way back, and not way back, but like, you know, if you have clients that are, or patients that are in their 60s or 70s, you might even hear words like transsexual because the language has shifted over time. So cisgender is kind of the opposite of transgender. I think it's Latin for same. But cisgender just means that your sex assigned at birth and your gender identity match up. And so if you were assigned female at birth and identify as a woman, you're a cisgender woman. And if you are assigned male at birth and identify as a man, you'd be a cisgender man. When we're talking about trans men and trans women, trans just means, like I said, not cis. And the second part of the word is their gender identity. Because I see this flipped incorrectly all the time. So trans, the first part of the word just means trans. They are trans. And then the second part of the word is their gender identity. I saw this a lot. I'm assuming most of us don't live under the rock, but everybody was freaking out with the always tampon thingy. They were taking away the Venus symbol that nobody knew there was there to begin with. (laughs) Um, And there were a lot of people on online who were very angry about trans women doing this, which is not who it's for. Because regardless of what sort of medical interventions you've had, nothing causes that to happen. Nobody gets periods through surgery. That doesn't, (laughs) we don't do that. And so like trans men, sometimes if they were assigned female at birth, still sometimes have periods. And so they need the products. Another term I might throw out a little bit is TERFs. So TERFs is a shorthand for trans exclusionary radical feminists. They're a group of people um, who have some very, I would say, outdated um, and misunderstandings related to trans people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, hope nobody yells at you <laughs> the comments over this. Generally, they say that transgender identity is a cult and mm-hmm. that we are, especially they have a lot of problems during the trans women saying that it's mm-hmm. men trying to force themselves into women's spaces. It's a whole big old mess that I'm not really going to touch. But generally, that is kind of the behavior. It's very bioessentialist. Like you can only be a woman if you have woman, quote unquote, woman parts. And it's, that's not, it's, it's an oversimplification of a complicated thing. So I think, I think those are all the terms I wanted to make sure I covered. Yeah. I never heard about the TERFs. I never heard about this. And then when Nicole and I started our podcast and has started an Instagram for our podcast, we started to get a lot of followers, mm-hmm. or not a lot, but some. And so I would follow them back to be nice. And some of our followers, I think, are... And so seeing some things that they posted were pretty jaw dropping. And so I stopped following them. But um, I, you know, it was definitely a space that I didn't, hadn't really known about before. Yeah. 
it's it's a frustrating situation because again it seems like people are well intentioned and trying to be protective but also it seems very anti-feminist to say that pe- what people have to do with their bodies and brains and saying what people have to do to be ex like it's just it's it seems very counterintuitive to me but i'm sure that they say the same thing about me mm-hmm. um Another thing I wanted to touch on really quickly with gender identity is non-binary identities because that tends to throw people off quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So usually people are like, all right, Frankie, I get it. Like somebody got put in the wrong box of the two boxes and that makes sense. But why are you making more boxes? And usually there's some kids on the Internet made up terms to make themselves feel better. So they were individuals. But that's not quite what happened. So there are actually modern and historical examples of third genders in human culture throughout human history. I don't have all of the data because that's not my area of expertise, but there is hijra, which is an Indian term. Two-spirit is a common uh, term in some Native American tribes. There is uh, mahu, which is Hawaiian, travesti, which is Central American. And all of those terms describe people in these cultures historically and currently who identify as not man or woman. And it's important to realize that we've been around for a real long time. (laughs) And unfortunately, because one of colonialism, those cultures were silenced or killed off or relegated to history or just, you know, ignored. And so we know that there are third gender options, but our language, our prev- like in English and in our Western culture, really didn't have terms to describe how people were feeling. And so some terms came out. Agender is really common. Gender queer. Um, those are just identifying people who don't identify with really any specific gender. There's gender fluid, which are people who kind of feel like they move back and forth and don't really fit in one box all the time. Gender nonconforming is a term for people who do identify with a gender but don't really feel comfortable conforming to like the expectations of that gender, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so there's just a – it's more complicated than people give it credit for. And one of the reasons that we are seeing more of this is, one, because it's – safer. I'm not saying it's safe. Being a trans woman increases your risk of being murdered by four times just for being a trans woman in this country. And so it's not safe in the sense that there is still a high risk. However, because people like I'm out as trans and not fired. And because of that, people are realizing that they don't fit into one box or the other, and they can live outside of those boxes. And so there are a lot of us who identify as non-binary. So that's the little category I fit in. And I use different pronouns than people are used to using for a singular person. I use they, them pronouns for myself. Yes. I love all of this. And I think... (laughs) This is so content heavy. I'm sorry. No, this is good. I mean, this is just good. And we all need to hear Mm -hmm. this. And this will probably be one of those episodes where you have to listen to it a couple times, (laughs) you know, for it all to sink in. And that's not a bad thing. It's just... It just just means it's really good. It makes me laugh sometimes because people like I giggle a little because people are like, how do you know all this? (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of hard to explain that like to not die. I grew up in a and I'm I'm very lucky to put that first stuff. I passed as a white man, which makes my life really, really easy. And I have supportive family. I have a partner. I have I, I have never lost a job for being trans. I haven't lost anybody important to me for being trans. Like, I fell into the luckiest category of the group. Mm-hmm. But when I was a kid, I didn't know that 
being trans was an option. So I didn't come out till I was in my late 20s. But I had feelings at a very young age. Research shows us that um, sexuality develops around puberty, right? You start realizing you want to interact with people in that way, and you start figuring out how you want to do that and who you want to do that with, and that's how sexuality develops. Gender develops much earlier. We see that developing around age three. And so I knew something was weird, but I didn't have language or understanding to understand where I fit in that. There's a kind of a joke that you know you're trans if you don't think you're trans enough to be trans. <laughs> um, and it's the idea that like, like, well, I have these feelings, but like, I don't want X or like, I feel this way, but it's probably not as bad as this person. So I'm probably not really trans. I'm probably faking it. There's probably something wrong with me. I'm, I'm, I'm not trans. And that was my lived experience. Like I had a lot of trans friends. I was a real good ally, but I was like, well, I don't want X, Y, or Z. So that means I, I don't fit in that box. One of the terms that I've thrown out, and I'm sorry, I'm really bad at remembering to define things, is gender dysphoria. So that is currently the diagnosis in the DSM-5 related to gender identity. So gender dysphoria, I'm not going to read the DSM part of it, but it's basically the idea. Um, dysphoria is like extreme emotional distress related to gender presentation. And there are a lot of those of us in the community who really aren't comfortable with pathologizing our identities. Mm -hmm. However... To access interventions, that's the way our system's set up. Mm -hmm. It used to be worse. In the DSM-4, it was just like being trans is a mental illness, which is so helpful mm -hmm. in society today. I really appreciate they put that in there. It makes my life super easy. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that pathologizing does, and it's again, it's better, but it starts you off from the frame of reference of like trans people are sick. Mm-hmm. And there are even people within the trans community who have internalized mm -hmm. those thoughts to the point that they're like, well, if you don't have gender dysphoria, then you're not trans. Oh. Yeah, that's kind of what I hear, I think. Yeah, no, it's it. There's like like any culture, there's, you know, infighting. But there are these people who think that, like, if you don't have these emotions, right. you can't be this. So one of the terms that I've heard on the Internet, but that people are using that I really like is gender euphoria, mm. which is the idea when you are read or presenting correctly, you feel an intense sense of euphoria, which is much more close to my lived experience. So I did have gender That's dysphoria, awesome. and technically I, I had mostly related to – I had a chest, I had breasts, and that caused me extreme emotional distress. And so I had surgery to change that up. Mm -hmm. And for me, once the surgery happened, like my dysphoria pretty much went away. I'm still on testosterone, which changes the way I look, and I'm very comfortable with that. But like for me, being read correctly is very important in the sense of being read as not a woman. Mm -hmm. And everybody's different. There are... I, I think there's there used to be this expectation that like you had to have a surgery or you had to have... Mm -hmm testosterone or estrogen, you had to do these things to be trans. And again, because of our understanding of gender has changed, we realized that all you need to be trans is to, is to be trans, is to feel that way. Um, and nobody can tell you how to feel. So like it, you have to trust an individual. And that's where we get uncomfortable in medicine. Because one of the things that we don't like is not being sure 
especially with this, which is interesting because like in every other medical intervention, you know, like these are the risk factors, these are the good and bad things, this is what we suggest. But when it comes to trans identities, if you go in and ask for hormones, you have to have a therapist letter saying you're sure, you have to be able to like rattle off everything because of our discomfort with this identity, we almost like demand our patients be experts in the medical aspect of their bodies in a way that we do not ask for any, like we don't expect a patient with congestive heart failure to come in and have everything memorized. We're shocked if they take their pills every day. (laughs) (laughs) But for some reason, we have this expectation that the trans person themselves has to be the medical expert to get adequate care. Hmm. So circling, that's, this is really helpful, this discussion. And I think Circling back to your comments about if a trans person wants hormones, they have to have a letter from a therapist. Is that pretty much standard practice even now? And are people changing or do you know? <laughs> this is a big conversation. So yeah. um, right now, WPATH, W-P-A-T-H is the kind of like main, they set the standard for Um, surgical and medical interventions for trans people. Um, However, if you look at some of their things, it actually like they like for one example is they always want you to see a therapist or a psychologist to get a letter saying that you know what you're doing. However, they even say themselves, there's no evidence beyond expert opinion that tells us that that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. So the best model we have now is the informed consent model which is literally what we do for everything else. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's not adopted by a lot of local places because people are afraid. There's this kind of like detransition myth. And there are people who go on hormones and stop them or have surgery and regret the surgery. But the example I always use is if you have an 18-year-old who comes in and wants breast implants, you don't ask her for a psychiatrist letter. Mm Mm-mm. At all. Mm -mm. She's an adult. She can make her own decisions. And so when we have that for trans people, the standard is vastly different. Hmm. And like I – mine was – I'll be honest. It was a mess to get everything together. And I'm lucky. I have a stable job. I have good income. I have access to my parents who had all of my birth certificate and social security card and records. Like I had all – everything set up correctly. And it was still a really challenging thing to work through. And on top of that, most insurance doesn't cover surgeries if that's something somebody wants. And it's incredibly expensive out of pocket. Mm -hmm. And it's just – I am lucky that like there were very minimal and privileged. There are very minimal barriers for me. But not everybody's in that spot. And Mm -hmm. even if – and not everybody wants it. I think there's this like kind of like medicalist idea that like – you have to have surgeries to be something, mm-hmm. which doesn't make sense because like what else it, – it just doesn't match any way we treat any sort of medical care that I can think of and that I've been able to find. And it, I think that just highlights how the discrimination is coded into our system. You know, I never thought of the whole, yeah, if an 18-year-old girl woman comes in and wants breast implants, no questions asked, here you go. Now, tubes tied is a whole other... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is a situation. Tubes tied, totally. That's probably the only thing I can think of that's similar. Right. 
And we all and know that's getting that's a, better. And we all know that's a bigoted practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there's nobody who's like, that's a good idea. It's such like it, but we, because it's practice, we treat it as if it's gospel mm-hmm. and we can't mm-hmm. question it. Well, I was trying to just put myself in the shoes of going to yeah. a therapist and and finding that therapist and then maybe going to the wrong therapist and if you don't have insurance like or that covers therapy. Mm-hmm. So I was just trying to put myself in just that. And there are there are resources. For example, the University of Iowa has a fund to help trans students change their legal names if they want to. Or the LGBT clinic has a partner with the school School of Education that has a clinic for LGBT people to come get their letters if they need a therapy letter. But even then, you still have another person deciding. Right. Like, I remember I went in for my appointment, and I was really nervous. And the person did a great job and sat down and she's like, so this is some gatekeeping nonsense that we have to do. (laughs) If you want hormones, you can get them. I will give you a letter, but I'd like to have a conversation. And that approach to me was very self-aware because if you're afraid, there's this idea that like, for example, if trans women back in the day wanted hormones, you know, the whole like, if I don't get this, I'm going to... Not to be crap, chop my dick off. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. And she got hormones. So what happened is she went and told all of her trans women friends, hey, if you say this, they will actually help you. Mm-hmm. And then that narrative became a thing. Mm-hmm. Trans people are were very good at whisper network and underground information. Mm-hmm. Like if one trans person says like, oh, that doctor shit, nobody's going to go to him. And it gets out in the community. I have lost count of the like – times I get reached out to and they're like, hey, who is safe? Mm. And the list is short, mm. to be frank. Mm-hmm. it's There's not a lot. And if... And this is a word of mouth safe? Sometimes word of mouth, sometimes like documents, but like generally okay. it's a community, like it's within the community. Sure. There's like some research I saw and it was such... <laughs> trans people have a lot of brand loyalty is the way they put it. But basically mm-hmm. like... And if I need a therapist, I would not go to a therapist unless another trans person was like, hey, that friend's cool. It happened once, and the person ended up being a TERF for me. Wow. And if it's already hard to go to those spaces and open up, Mm -hmm. it's just adding more and more and more and more barriers. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's great for everybody to see a therapist. I mean, same. (laughs) I'm a mental health professional. Everybody needs therapy. It's great. Oh, my gosh. Have you ever tried couples therapy? Yeah, it's awesome. It's the most magical experience <laughs> in my life. Oh, my God. I, I would like recommend such, it. I felt like such a stereotype, but I went and I was like, this is so much better. Holy crap. It was amazing. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Yes. I, all therapy is like that. I mean, with the right person, right? So, with the right person and for the right reason. Yeah. yeah. A self-motivated mm-hmm. therapy. Mm-hmm. It's also important to realize, like, for in Iowa, there are many counties where that's not available. Mm -mm. Yeah. Or in Iowa, what if you're, like, a person of color who wants a therapist who's also a person of color? Mm -mm. It's a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. And that's in busy districts, like Iowa City. It's hard Mm -hmm. to find. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how we can make the list of people that you can go to longer. Yes. Try and help our providers get on the good list. Everyone should have access to the care that they yes. deserve and they need. So, and I think if language, like you said, mm-hmm. is one of the things that can help, then yes. I would love to give our listeners all those tools. I have tips. Yes, let's talk about that. Okay, so one question, and I I know that when we had previously messaged, I'm going to go ahead and ask this the wrong way so that you can can clarify this. So, Mm -hmm. okay, the question is, why is it important? And I think you've talked a lot about this part of it. um, But why is it important for clinicians to understand all of these concepts and to use preferred pronouns? Yeah. One thing to be aware of is that preferred pronouns isn't usually the terminology that's best. Just because, like, I prefer vanilla ice cream to chocolate, but, like, my pronouns are a preference. Pronouns are pronouns. Like, it's Mm -hmm. like saying that, like, saying your gender is a preference is minimizing. Mm -hmm. It's important for clinicians to understand because we all want to provide better care. And if people don't trust you, they're not going to tell you. I have gone to so many appointments, and I know people where I don't say shit. And it's because I don't feel safe around that person. So I will limit the information I give them or somebody would limit the information they give their doctor, which means their doctor might miss or nurse, practitioner, their prescriber might miss really important things because they didn't feel safe. And you can't feel safe with somebody using the wrong language. So a lot of it is just coming down to making your patients feel safe. So even just, you know, instead of having what are your preferred pronouns, then what would you be the suggested way to ask? So a lot of times people are really nervous about asking because they don't know how to say it. Just ask, what name and pronouns would you like me to use for you? Well, what, what name would you like me to call you? What pronoun should I use? And it's okay to mess up and maybe like flub those words. The biggest thing is putting the effort in and not putting the onus on the patient. So example is if I have a patient that comes in and they give me a name that's not the same as their medical records, instead of asking, what's your real name? I'm going to ask, is there another name your chart could be under? Or is there another name your insurance might be under? It's little things. Also making sure that you document if they have a different name so they don't have to come out to every single person that they interact with. My partner kind of looks similar to me and is also trans, and they have a very stereo, like very feminine name. So they were at a doctor's appointment and they have a beard and, you know, they, they look like a guy in every way. And the nurse came out and called for Caitlin. That immediately not only makes Kai uncomfortable, that's my partner's name, but it outs them to everyone in the room. Mm-hmm. And that may be fine, But it also may not be fine. And that fear of the unknown, it's like as a woman, if you're walking home alone at night, 99% of the time it's fine, but it's still terrifying Mm -hmm. depending on where you are and how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And so even if there's a low risk, the risk still exists and that risk is very stressful. Mm-hmm. That's a great analogy. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So when you're talking about calling someone like from yeah. the waiting room, so I think one of the things that Nicole and I have been talking about with this veteran group, we're talking about salutations. Yeah. So, and I, this came up too. Mm-hmm. Um, we were submitting a manuscript uh, for publication, and it was to a sexual and reproductive health journal too. Mm-hmm. So, but because the publisher, it was like you had to select a salutation, like that was required field, and the options were doctor, Ms., Mister. 
and there is a person who is an author who is trans Mm -hmm. and but does not have a phd or an md Mm -hmm. so is not a doctor Mm -hmm. so it's like okay what salutations do we do we use and so we ended up writing to the journal editor and they changed it which was awesome yay that's awesome yeah, yeah. But, you know, but so we were talking about this with our group. If, you know, saying Ms. or Mrs. or mm-hmm. Mr. And, and some people don't want any of those. So what yeah. is your suggestion? So, well, one of the nice things about the military mm-hmm. is you can use rank if right. that's an active thing. There is a honorific for trans people. It's MX. It's pronounced mix. Mm-hmm. And that can be used in place of Mr. or Mrs., Mm-hmm. There is not a difference for sir or ma'am. And so one of the things I encourage people to do is to just use gender neutral terms instead of saying the patient, instead of saying of gendering the person. This is a bit of a 2.0 conversation. But for example, I use they them pronouns. And if I don't know somebody's pronouns, I just use they them pronouns mm-hmm. until I they let me know. And if they don't, that's what I use. So I also was raised with a a very intense Irish Catholic grandmother who, sir and ma'am, was what you said. So I like fear her, feel her spirit haunting me when I when I say <laughs> it wrong. But obviously, the military system is not my background. But making sh- being respectful is outside of sir or ma'am. You can still right. be incredibly respectful of somebody without using those gendered terms. So just. Again, it's adjusting language. And like any adjustment with language, it takes practice and you're going to flub. And that's okay. But it's just practice. So what do you do if you flub? Yes. Yay. This is my, I hope anybody who listens to this takes this to heart because it is my my deep frustration in life. So if you misgender somebody or if you misname someone, the best thing to do is correct yourself, briefly apologize, and move on with the conversation. So let's say I was talking to Nicole. I was like, hey, Nicole, and I I call you he in the conversation. The best thing for me to do would be to be like, oh, sorry, she, and then move on with the conversation. The two things I would prefer you not do is one, ignore the mistake, because that communicates to the trans person that you did it on purpose or that you don't care about their identity. The other thing that is equally frustrating is if I then have to spend the next half hour listening to somebody tell me how they didn't mean it and that they're an ally of the trans community. I had a while ago a coworker. We were passing in the hallway, and she asked how things were, and I said they were great. And she's like, you go, girl. And I got the end. Like, I knew what she meant, and I was not upset. But I remember as I walked away, I was like, I'm going to get an email in an hour. <laughs> and an hour later... <laughs> I checked my email and I had a a pretty, not like paragraphs, but a longer email (laughs) apologizing profusely, but also putting the onus on me in the sense of like, tell me what to do. Tell me how to be better, which like I understand that. But also you made the mistake Mm -hmm. and it's not my responsibility to fix it. And then the person also approached me outside of the email and I was just uncomfortable. So I was like, no, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Just wanting to end the conversation. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, it is a big deal. And it just made mm-hmm. me tired. Mm-hmm. So if you make a mistake, briefly apologize, correct yourself, move on. And if you want education, do that yourself or respectfully give the person some space and later ask them. Because one of the things that I find tiring is that, and I am an educator, so like I'm a little bit more open than others, but it's not the work of 
a trans person to teach you about the trans community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just like it shouldn't be the work of a woman to educate a man on how like sexism works. Mm-hmm. Or it shouldn't be the place of a black person to explain racism to a white person. Like it's right. you're putting onus on a marginalized population. And that's high, when they already have to deal with the nonsense. So I don't know how to ask this question. That's and I okay. Know I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here, so I know it's, mm-hmm. it's going to sound bad. I'm just going to preface right. all of that. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. So your response with being brief and move on, if someone else is listening, do you feel like, oh gosh, I feel terrible even asking this question. That's all right. Is, do you think that would be widely accepted or is that what you prefer does that make sense yes the majority of trans people i know would like people to correct themselves i do put a caveat on that let's say you have a patient who is a minor and that patient tells you they're trans but they don't want you to tell their parents conversion therapy is still legal in iowa to be done on minors and so you have to consider like in that scenario you could outing the child could subject them to legal conversion therapy, which is as mild, Mm. quote unquote, mild as yelling at them about how they're disappointing God and as extreme as electroshock therapy to the genitals. Yes. I just learned that. Yeah. So it's very important. Yep. Conversion therapy is legal in Iowa. So it's very important to respect the person and individual. One of the things that I so appreciate and it makes my heart so happy is so like I worked on uh, the same inpatient unit. I started there as a nursing assistant when I was 19, and I worked there for eight years. And so they knew me before I transitioned. And so it got, a lot of times, I just didn't correct people because it was tiring. Yeah. I got other shit to do. Patients need me. I'm not going to fight over pronouns. Right. But one of the things that I appreciated is that I didn't have to correct people if somebody else did. So like if I was in a group and somebody misgendered me somebody else jumping in and being like hey it's you know it's they them takes the work from me mm-hmm. which was really nice and made my life quite a bit easier and so the way i often equate misgendering is kind of like a pinprick so most days i'm a functional adult i'd like to think and i can handle a pinprick right diabetics do it all the time we got this and i don't snap or get pissy but let's say there's something else, you know, like, let's say I had a really bad day. Let's say my family member had a doctor's appointment where they got some bad news. Let's say my cat pooped on the bed. Like, let's say like, there's a bunch of stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And then a coworker who I've spoken to about multiple times, mm-hmm. misgenders me again. Mm-hmm. So I snap. And Obviously, nurses should never have to tolerate verbal abuse or physical abuse. But realizing that if a trans, like, because what I hear every time I give this presentation, there's one person that raises their hand and was like, there was this one time that a trans person was rude to me. Like, yeah, <laughs> we're people. <laughs> you know? Like, How dare they? <laughs> if you say every trans person's nice, that's kind of a form of bigotry. Because <laughs> right? you're saying every trans person's the same and you're taking away their humanity. There are some people who are trans, I'm sure, who are <laughs> because that's how humans work. We're a variety. And so you have to realize that, yes, there will be some people who are not nice. <laughs> so one of the things that I read the other day, and I'm, I, it was like a Facebook click article. I'm sorry, I don't have an author. But it was talking about the importance of how you get mad at people. So, like, for example, Caitlyn Jenner is a trans woman 
mm-hmm. who also seems to be a sexist mm-hmm. murderer. She killed somebody in a hit and she killed, oh, right. she, she yeah. killed her homicide. She killed someone. Right. She's still a woman. She's still trans, and I still use her correct pronouns. But she's not very nice, it seems like. Right. But if you, for example, so like if I don't like somebody and then I refuse to use their correct name and pronouns, that says that I don't respect trans people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like if, like, you know, if you say you respect women, but then there's a woman you don't like, so you start disparaging her appearance, calling her sexist names, that says how you feel about women all the time. So one of the things I get frustrated and I see is if like a trans person pisses someone off, automatically we start hearing comments about their appearance, about their gender identity, misgender. And like, so it's realizing that like, even if I don't like somebody, I'm still going to use their correct name and pronouns. Right. Because mm-hmm. it's decency. Mm-hmm. Right. I will admit this is a little petty of me. I'm not proud of this. I do not recommend this as an intervention, but there have been cases where if I was in a little spiky of a mood and somebody really was doing a poor job and had a pattern of doing it and was very spiky at gentle redirection, I would, for a brief amount of time, purposely misgender them to their face to see so they could maybe see a little bit of how it felt. Yeah. I'm not proud of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, you know, I'm human and fallible and I made a mistake. And so and you know what? It, they didn't like it. Yeah. And, and one of the things that you see with trans people is because I get asked about my genitals more than I would like <laughs> by people who I my rule that I make this as a joke, but it's true. If you don't plan on touching it, you don't get to ask. I like that. Yeah. 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 That's good for our yeah. listeners. I yeah. think. I mean, a lot of our listeners might be looking or touching. Yeah. If you are a urology nurse, right? ask. If you are a stranger in the doctor's office, don't. And this goes back to your the story you told with like, your actual possibly broken leg. Yeah. If you're not going to touch it, then don't ask. Yeah, don't ask. ask. Yeah. Yeah. And now let's say, for example, I am a psychiatrist and I have a patient who is in for gender dysphoria and figuring out their gender dysphoria and seeing what causes them stress. I might need to ask, you know, like they say that having breasts causes them stress. Asking about surgery would make sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. But one of the things that I think is really important is don't use a trans person to satisfy your curiosity. Mm. Yeah, because like I'm a healthcare professional. Surgeries are cool. Like, right, right. like they when they do a knee surgery, they like cut your leg off besides the ligaments and they put a yeah. new knee on. Mm. That's totally. bananas. Yeah. That's amazing. So if you were curious about surgeries related to trans people, there's a lot of resources out there. But again, if you don't plan on interacting with it, don't ask. It's a nice rule of thumb. Yeah. In this day and age, you can educate yourself all day long. You don't need somebody else to do it. I had a nursing unit clerk ask me what my genitals looked like in the nurse's station in front of oh, colleagues. Nice. I had a salesman ask me once what? What, my, what my downstairs looked like when he was trying to sell me a timeshare. That was not pleasant. Okay. I did not buy anything. It's uh, not a good sales tactic. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Wasn't at all. And yeah, it's again, like it's just realizing that you're not a science project. I, yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Mm -hmm. I mean, except for myself, maybe. (laughs) I guess technically. (laughs) But yeah, no, just realizing that because when you do that, 
you take away somebody's humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's really, and then again, it comes that cycle of not feeling safe, not trusting, not right. coming back. Then then we yeah. see those health disparities just getting more and you know, it just, it cycles. So I want to build on what you just, so you talked about health disparities. So I'm going to yeah. kind of bring us back a little bit. And so we had talked in our screener call, you had discussed health disparities and contributing versus protective factors. Yes. Can we talk about this? Absolutely. So when we look at disparities, this isn't obviously just against trans people. Um, It's against LGBT people. We see that people who identify as lesbians are less likely to get preventative screenings for cancer, especially cervical and breast. We know that gay men are are at higher risk for HIV and STIs, especially among communities of color. Elderly LGBT individuals are often isolated and lonely and, and disconnected from the community because all of the services are directed towards younger people. I mentioned the survey done, the National Service for Transgender Equality did it, and it was 2016. And I just want to share a couple statistics, which I think highlight something. So when we look at this was done, they had about 30,000 people respond. Wow. Um, which is a pretty, considering that this is only 0.3% of the U.S. population, that's yeah. a pretty solid survey. And it looked at respondents who were out as trans or were perceived to be trans when they were in K-12, through so children. And so 77% of them report some form of mistreatment in school. 54% said they were verbally harassed. 24%, so a quarter, said that they were physically attacked. reported sexual assault, and 17% of them left school. So it's important to realize that, yes, this is like, like, this is affecting children. This is not like the harassment and the like way we teach kids about gender makes it so those kids are more likely to be violent towards trans kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I want to clarify, this is not something inherent in people in this community. There's not like some gene in trans people that makes us more likely to like die young. It is related to social and systemic institutionalized homophobia and transphobia. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple examples I can give right now, in 21 states in this country, there are protective laws for trans people. So in less than half. So if I moved to a different state and I told my boss, hey, I'm transgender. I just wanted you to know. I could get fired for no other reason than the fact that I'm trans. We also, have you ever heard of the trans panic defense? <laughs> it's a legal defense that has been used. And I think some states are prohibiting it now, but it is still used where if it's usually used against trans women. So if a man was going to have sex with a trans woman and kills her, the defense is that he was so panicked when he saw that she might have a penis that he murdered her, and it's okay. I can't. No words. I did not know that. No. I also think it's important to realize that there is positive coping. Yeah. That's how advocacy works, right? You guys made this podcast because something angered you, (laughs) and you (laughs) wanted to educate people on it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to, I just, I don't want to give the impression that all of us are like damaged and sad. (laughs) No, I think that's lovely that you don't want to do that. (laughs) I remember I I had a very well-meaning colleague where we were talking about like our holiday plans and my mom's birthday is Christmas Day. Hi, mom, if you end up listening. I hope I didn't say anything upsetting. Um, (laughs) But I mentioned I was going home for Christmas. And this person very well intentionally was like, I think it is so beautiful that you have a good relationship with your parents. 
And I was just like, it took me a second. I was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, because I'm trans. And so realizing that just because somebody is a, neg- a member of this community doesn't mean they have negative experiences. Yeah. And just because they have negative experiences doesn't mean they're broken. And I think that's important to remember. Now, for the happy stuff, protective factors, things that make lives better for LGBT people. Um, most of the research looks at youth, positive images of LGBT people. So historically in Hollywood, there's actually been like rules. The, the most commonly known one is called the sissy villain. So this was in Hollywood about 15 to 20 years ago, still encoded in a lot of ways. But it was this unspoken rule that if you were going to have a gay character, it had to be a man. They had to be effeminate and they had to be the bad guy. So think about like Bond movies or like any sort of film. The, the, the bad, if there was a gay character, he was effeminate mm-hmm. and he was the bad guy. Always. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another term that's still very much seen is uh, it's called barrier gaze. And once you know what it is, you see it everywhere. But it's the idea that if there's a character that comes out as gay or some form, like as a member of this community, they're usually killed off in a few episodes. Hmm. To the point where, like, if I watch a show and they're like, oh, yeah, I used to date men. I'm like, oh, I liked you. Oh. Shucks. <laughs> can you, what is it? What, can you name a show? Just um, a popular show? Yeah. The most recent Star Trek. Okay. Is the first one that comes to my head. The Hundred is another one oh, that's uh-huh. modern that you see that. Yeah, but actually, yeah. even in the Golden Girls, in the first few episodes, they had there a gay go. man who was like would cook, and and yeah. then yeah, he just disappears mm-hmm. out of the storyline. Oh, now that I think about that, they're everywhere. Hmm, I'll have to pay more attention to that. Yeah, it's the worst. So if we see positive images of LGBT people or just images Uh like represented in a good way, that decreases mental health negative outcomes. Another thing we see is um, gay straight alliances, GSAs in schools. We see if schools allow and support those kind of like clubs, we see a drop in suicidality and depression. Awesome. And then the one that I think is just amazing to me. So this is specifically for trans people. So statistically, 40% of trans people attempt suicide at some point in their life. It's nine times the national average. If the response of their support system, generally parents, is positive or neutral to them coming out, that number drops to the national average or below. Wow. So this is my plea (laughs) to parents. If a kid comes to you and comes out as trans, you don't have to be over the moon. I get it. It's confusing. It's weird. You're not prepared. However, if your response is just neutral or positive, you drop the risk of suicide by 50% almost. Like Mm -hmm. it's bananas. Mm -hmm. So very important. There's actually some research out there now that also shows – it was actually a pretty large study done. I was surprised. They had about 200 trans people in it, which is a pretty big number. And they looked at correct name and pronouns being used in four areas of the life with friends, family, work and school. And they found that they had, let me see if I can find the exact statistics because they make my heart happy. If their chosen name was used in all four areas, they had 71% fewer symptoms of severe depression. They had a 34% percent decrease in reported thoughts of suicide and they had a 65 percent decrease in suicide attempts and folks that's why language is important that's huge 
And that's simple. The basic information is if you use the chosen name and pronouns, you save lives. Wow. So I've had, I spoke, I spoke with a mom a while back who was really struggling with her kid being trans and she'd gotten on some of the turf blogs and rhetoric. And I knew what she was talking about because she was using the same talking points. One of the things that came down to is if you use the right name for your kid, the chosen name, whatever you want to call it, if you use the name that he picked and the right pronouns, all you're doing is showing them that you respect his choices and his body autonomy. Let's say he changes his mind. That rarely happens, but it could. Sure. Mm -hmm. Let's say in five years, he's like, actually, I was wrong. I'm not trans. I'm going to use this name and pronouns again. Mm -hmm. What's the harm? Yeah. Yeah. You've taught him that you respect his boundaries and that he has the right to determine how he interacts with the world. Gosh, this is so powerful. Yeah. Those statistics you said. Yeah. I just think of all the times I hear, oh, they're so sensitive. Why does their names, why does that matter? Why do I have to use the pronouns? Like literally research shows you save lives. Mm -hmm. And and I, I will admit I do have a pretty... I don't know if you want to call it a bias, a little extra chip about it. My dad committed suicide. And so suicide Mm -hmm. is something that's very near and dear to my heart. We Mm -hmm. have a nonprofit that we do in our community back up in Wisconsin. And so I just like this is so core. It's so core. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To hear that. I'm sorry about your dad. It's it's okay. So Frankie, can I ask you, because I'm just going to, this is also, I'm going to maybe ask this wrong. You're good. But I just want to talk about the they, them pronouns. And and you probably hear this a lot. (laughs) I think that one of the things I personally struggle with when I'm talking, not necessarily when I'm talking to someone who Mm -hmm. uses they, them pronouns, but if I'm talking about them with someone else, I'll accidentally slip, slip. Yeah, Mm -hmm. use he or she. And I think a lot of the times for me, maybe, Mm -hmm. it's more of like a grammar. Like I'm talking about one person. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like a habit. Yes. That I, you know, like I don't want to misgender or, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that's how most people feel. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you, what are your thoughts about that? I got so many tips. Don't worry about it. Okay. So with they, them pronouns. First of all, just for those who feel the spirit of their English teachers coming down to punish them. (laughs) Yes. My grandmother. (laughs) Socially, they, them has been used for singular person for a long time. However, Oxford English Dictionary, Webster Dictionary, and I think a couple have changed their definition of they, them to singular singular usage. Mm. So if you feel your English teacher, it's it's different now. Mm -hmm. You can use it that way. I got to tell my high school English teacher that at a presentation once, and she was super chill about it, but it was very exciting for me. (laughs) (laughs) I do like writing Yes. When I write, I like using they, them, but what, like the speech is, yeah. The trick I was taught, which I really like, is if you're talking about somebody with they, them pronouns and you're getting it stuck, Mm -hmm. pretend they're holding a kitten and you're talking about both of them. Oh, I love that. And there are some parts that are awkward. Like people are always like, do you use, like if you're talking about me and like they are, like, you're not going to say they is in the cafeteria. Just use what sounds right. So if you're talking about me, you'd say they are on the podcast. That is their hat. They're coming soon. They're running late. Mm-hmm. So it's and again, the biggest thing that I always tell people is practice. 
Right. It's just practice. So human beings are amazing at patterns, right? We're really, really good at patterns. If somebody asks you how you are today, you don't think. You just say, I'm fine. And that's kind of how we are with pronouns because we were taught them at a very young age. And so the way I describe it to people is it's just like relearning to tie your shoe because right now you tie your shoe and you don't think about it. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing with pronouns. You don't have to think about it. So anytime you have to change a long ingrained pattern, it's going to take time and practice. So if it doesn't feel smooth, that's totally fine. I heard an interesting thing that a clinic did, which I thought that was kind of a neat thing, is to practice with pronouns. They all wore different pronoun things, different days. And so they had to get used to referring to people by different pronouns than they would expect or were used to, which I thought was genius. Hmm. But that's one clinic I know did that as kind of a a way to practice. So what are your thoughts then as a clinician if you're like, okay, what if I just use they, them? I'm fine with it. The big issue is if somebody tells you what their pronouns are and you refuse to use them. Okay. So it could be, you know, maybe a blanket thing, but then if someone does say, no, this is what I use. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes I see that with people using the neutral they, them with people who they know are trans men or trans women. Okay. And so like if a trans woman told you like, I'm a woman, I use she, her, and you only use they, them for her, that's purposefully misgendering. Okay. So- I also always encourage people to, if if you make a habit of asking people their pronouns, don't just ask people who look trans to you. Because if you're asking just the people you think are trans, right, that's a problem. Right. Yeah. So, and they might not be trans. I don't look. Trans. Yeah. Right. And or uh, or they don't look trans. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you're just going like I'm going to ask that person their pronouns because they look trans to me, mm-hmm. you're going to miss out on a lot of people because we don't tell you. So just making sure. And there are a lot of cis people who may look trans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Bodies are weird. Yeah. Human beings are bananas in our variation. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, just like if you do make a habit of asking pronouns, don't ask just the people you think are trans. I love that. And building on, I feel like we're getting into some good kind of mm-hmm. t- toolbox type things like as yeah. a provider. What are some other toolbox active things providers can do mm-hmm. to get them on the to get them on the good list? Yeah. Don't expect a person, especially if they're in crisis, to educate you. I know that seems really basic, but if you are curious about something or interested, It's okay to look things up, but asking the person to do a lot of heavy education is a problem. That being said, let's say somebody uses a word that you don't know or a word that you've been told is offensive. An example I always use is I use queer to identify myself often just because it's shorter than a lot of the other words. And that is for many people an offensive term. Mm -hmm. A lot of us, especially if you're younger, like 30s and below, that word doesn't have the painful connotation that it does for many. So like if I was like, hey, I'm queer, don't tell me that my word's offensive. Mm. You should not use it. But like if I or so if like I'm like, oh, I identify as queer as a clinician, I think it's appropriate to be like, OK, can you tell me what that word means to you? Because I want to make sure my definition matches up. I like that. Another one I wanted to add. If you wear a token, like let's say you wear a little rainbow pin or you do that kind of stuff, you have to follow up your token with actions. So you can't just say, like, if you wore a rainbow suit to work, but you heard someone say, that's gay, and don't respond, you're not backing up your tokens with action. 
Yes. And all you're doing is communicating to the LGBT people in the room around you that you're not safe. Can I ask you yeah. back to the they, them and talking to other people? I'm just a firm believer. And of course, like you need to communicate with patients, yeah. everyone respectfully. But what I see a lot of the times is the back room talking you know like, yes i'm really nice to the patients but then i'm gonna shit talk them when i leave yeah 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 and some of it is like okay like you need to debrief or distress do you have any advice on bringing the allyship into conversations yeah. with your colleagues like so if i were to misgender you you know what could nicole say to me to kind of call me out on that so the biggest thing is framing it in the fact that it, it will be uncomfortable because conflict is uncomfortable, right? right. Like nobody loves it. But remember that you are providing care. Like by correcting, if a patient mis is, is misgendered, you are being a patient advocate. Like you are doing your job. Yes, yes. Yep. Also important to remember that Iowa does have protections for trans people encoded into our laws. Like legal discrimination protections. So that person is technically breaking the law. Mm. Oh. So it's the same thing as if a coworker, not the same, if a coworker stole medications, you're not just right. going to be like, well, he shouldn't have done that, but I didn't want to have a fight. Like, right. <laughs> you have to intervene. Mm -hmm. So I am always a big fan of intervening in the moment. I also understand that like sometimes it's a person with power or there's like a complicated relationship. So if you do it in the moment, you are communicating to those around you that you will not tolerate that. And so you are helping build a culture of respect. If you can't for like an emergency reason, you know, you feel physically unsafe in that space, at least report it to somebody. <laughs> Mm. Talk to the boss. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yes, yeah. it's not good to not confront. But if we're talking about a big issue, like I'm not there. So I don't want to be like, you suck for not doing everything perfectly all the time. Right. Like, yes, do your best. Mm -hmm. But if you make a mistake, at least follow up and try to fix what you can. Mm -hmm. I will say because I'm trans, oftentimes I am the one who gets the stuff handed to me. Like, oh, this person was discriminatory. Oh, this person did this. And not even related to my field necessarily. Like I will have somebody be like, I was sexually assaulted or that person said something racist. And because I am also in a marginalized population, mm -hmm. that labor gets handed to me. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of using your privilege to lighten the load. If you are not trans, it's nice if you can use a little bit of that step up that you have to mm -hmm. make it easier for somebody who's having a worse time. What's the best way to, to say something then? Say like, oh, I think you made a mistake there, friend. It's actually she. That's simple enough. Yeah. And it's okay to, I do it politely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if people aren't polite to my response, then I will push. And again, like, I don't want to tell somebody you have to yeah. do X, Y, or Z. You know the relationship to the person. But the important thing about calling it out in a space politely is that that communicates to everybody who's in earshot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because if you pull the person aside, then nobody who heard that knows mm -hmm. that that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Silence in the face of oppression takes the side of the oppressor. So like if somebody says something bigoted and you're quiet, that communicates to everyone that you agree whether you do or not. Right. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. 
Uh, that is not my quote. <laughs> no, but it, it hits because I know it's really hard living where I live and to not call it out every time I see it. You, you know what I mean? And so I know they're... And, oh, and I get this you. This is something that I need to deal with because I hear it all the time and I'm like, it's not even worth engaging with them because, you know, I'm not going to change their mind. They're not going to change mine. But I also carry this guilt of like, yeah, it's hard and I need to, I need to say something. So I like to just think, hey, I think you meant this. I yeah. think you mean to say, I like that. You don't have to like take a stand and give a speech. Yeah. You just got to redirect. Yeah. Yeah. So, in the spirit of calling people out, <laughs> I prefer. Oh, okay, this is everybody's going to roll their eyes when I say this. I actually prefer the term "calling people in." Okay, calling. Oh, I love that. Actually, <laughs> I'm not going to roll my eyes at that. I like the idea of like instead of like pushing people, we're, we're bringing them in. We're going to yes. work on it together. Okay, so let's, Frankie. Can you bring us in? So <laughs> <laughs> we have talked and a lot about this and struggled with our naming our podcast um mm-hmm. so our podcast you know woman-centered health which is also used in many healthcare clinics so you think about women's clinics uh well women exams so what is your perspective on our name and do you have any alternative recommendations that are inclusive of those who identify as women, but also those who identify as trans, queer, or non-gender binary? Yeah, that's a big question. It is. (laughs) I want to preface this with, there is no right answer. Right. There isn't. Like, there's going to be opinions, people, I, I, the, the arguments that I've seen for and against of changing, so if against changing is women have had to sp- fight for their spots at the table and women have had to fight to get proper care in clinics and still do, um, especially among marginalized populations. And so like taking that title away discredits the work has been that has been done. The argument for changing is that not everybody with gynecological parts with, you know, a uterus, re- those reproductive organs is a woman. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you only say women, you're discounting that part of the population. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so those are generally the arguments I tend to see. But it's also important to realize that beyond definition, the way we use terms matters more. So like the definition of a term matters. But for example, I'll use queer. My definition of the word queer is important. But if I know that me using that word hurts someone, I will curtail my use. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, for example, um, the term gynecological, I did some digging and the word gyne refers to woman, but gynecological health also is more inclusive. I also personally don't think you have to change the name. The example I think of uh, the Women's Resource and Action Center here in Iowa City, fantastic resource. I have gone to them many times. I know many people that go regardless of gender identity because they do a really good job of communicating what they're for. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you have to change the name. I think actually Women's Resource and Action Center has theirs like Women Resource and Action Center, uh, people of all genders are welcome here. And so it's the idea of if you keep the name, doing your best to communicate inclusivity. Mm-hmm. And if you change the name, making sure it's clarified as to why, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Totally. So I'm of the the fan of instead of saying women's health, I say gynecological health. Because everybody knows what gynecological health means. Uh, Mm -hmm. Gynecological health means, you know, vagina, uterus, ovaries, babies, maybe. You don't know. Mm -hmm. 
And that's what I'm comfortable with. But I also think that having the title Women-Centered Health, just like having Women's Resource and Action Center, isn't necessarily a negative as long as you put the work in to communicating what you're trying to do. I like that. Love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much yeah. for talking with Seth about that. Yeah. So quickly, so I know we're going over time, but what are some resources you would recommend for clinicians who want to learn more about inclusive communication or how to provide uh, inclusive care? Yes. So there are a lot, and I don't want to just narrow it down to what's local, but just to name a few that I think are great, the center, and again, everything has a caveat, right? So like WPATH um, has a lot of information about transitioning and how to provide better care. The Center for Excellence for Transgender Health is also good. I'm a big fan of the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association. They do really good work. They have information on providing better care, but they also have information and support for LGBT clinicians, which I think is important to recognize. Planned Parenthood has outforhealth.org, which is pretty good. I always send people to the UI LGBTQ clinics website. They do a really good job of collecting resources outside of what you would expect. Again, it's, I, I guess those resources are important and also just like being critical. You know, if you go to a website that is saying things that are not great, um, you know, like digging into what their mission is. There's a big group of people who are anti-trans who call themselves gender critical. That's the term that you see a lot of spaces. Just trying to educate yourself the best you can. I definitely recommend the UI's LGBTQ clinics website, though. They are they have a pretty good repository of resources. Perfect. And I can send you some of my stuff if you'd like. Yeah, and we'll be sure to include all of these in our show notes, too. So if you Thank have you. additional resources or things you want to add, let us know and we'll make sure we put them all in the in the uh, show notes. I can do that. Perfect. Well, Frankie, this has just been amazing. I actually look forward to editing this because I think it's going to take a couple times to just <laughs> digest all of this. Yeah. It was such a good conversation. Thank you. So we just want to thank you so much for your time and your commitment to advancing Welcome. sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end? Yes, uh, if you don't mind. Yes. Uh, One big thing that I want to say is thank you to people who are listening who want to provide better care. I know sometimes I can come across as a little like, you got to do this. But even just taking the step to educate yourselves and learn means that it's safer. And I have seen the, the harm that can be done when people don't care. And I've also seen the difference that it can make if a single clinician pushes back and tries to do better. Um, So I just wanted to say thank you to people for trying to be that person. I love that. Yeah. I want to like put that as a clip. Yeah. (laughs) On social media. (laughs) Yeah. Feel free. (laughs) Tag me. That's like going to make me cry. So, but I know you have places to go. Yeah. I got to run. Yes. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com.